when we uh, think about the world that we live in, um, you know, there, there's some things that just don't belong together. Anybody give me an example of something in this world that we think of, just that things that don't belong together, maybe they're opposites in your mind or they just don't mix well? Hot and cold, right? Okay, what happens when something hot and cold meet? One, either, either the cold wins out and you get something a little bit less cold but still cold, or the heat. Yeah, I was thinking about fire and water as one example, and that goes along with that. I was thinking about babies and electrical outlets. They don't mix well, but then I decided I... You know, uh, babies and camper steps don't mix well either. We learned that this morning. <laughs> the little guy pushed open the door that was apparently not latched properly, and I caught him before he hit his head on the floor, but he, t he did a somersault and flipped down the two little steps. That did <laughs> a lot of dangerous things in the world for, for little kids. I also thought about Farm boy in Paris, a lot of times country and city sometimes are an interesting mix. I mean, that's just a little bit silly, but really we're going to talk about light and darkness this morning. And not just light and darkness in terms of the sun and the night, the night and day, but in terms of the body of Christ. Because in, in the same way that there are things in this world that don't go together, there are some things that simply do not belong in the body of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, Christians are called light in the Lord. And we are called to walk as children of the light. And so our passage makes some strong statements that warn us sin. Moral darkness, such as sexual immorality or greediness or filthy and foolish language, does not belong in the body of Christ. Now, this does not mean that we are going to be the perfect people that we maybe long to be or think we are. But we are called to live in the light. To be a light in this world. Full of thankfulness to God. Seeking to do what is pleasing to God. And bringing sin to light. So that we would be people who love what is good. And hate what is evil. We turn to Ephesians if you haven't, and we'll begin reading in verse 3. We spoke about a little bit about walking in love last week. We'll be reading verses 3 to 6. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no foolish talking nor crude joking, which are out of place, 
but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Some things do not belong in the body of Christ. Verse 3 speaks of that which is not proper for the saints. Verse 4, that which is out of place. And we have, in a sense, two categories here. Verse 3, we have a lifestyles, living a life that is characterized by these things. And, And the words we speak are also mentioned as something important because as we remember Jesus' words, um, what we say reveals what is in our hearts. The text doesn't say that we shall never sin. First John tells us if anyone thinks he does not sin, then he is a liar. But it does speak of that which is not belong. Speaks of that which should not be named. In ancient culture, to be named as something would to be known for such things. If you were known as the son of disobedience, you were a person characterized by wickedness rather than what is good. So we come to, we look at, in verse 3, we see sexual immorality. This is a broad term that refers to really any kind of sexual intimacy outside of marriage. Impurity of every kind is also named. And this is closely tied with sexual immorality, but includes all kinds of that which is not of God. Prideful thinking. Stealing and lying. Sort of a catch-all phrase. Covetousness could also be translated greed. You want to be on the more literal. It's this desire for more. That verse 5 describes as idolatry. And we think, well, I don't desire to worship that statue of a God that's devouring a child. But... we may often desire something that God has not given us. The act of coveting is is such that we are worshiping whatever it is that we desire in this world. 
rather than the Creator, and being thankful for all that He has given to us. And in the Jewish mindset, really, this is at the core of, of sin. The core of sin was the desire for more than what God had given to mankind. We see this in the garden when Adam and Eve chose more than what God had so graciously given to them. Today, we hardly think twice about wanting more. There's nothing wrong with wanting something, necessarily. But is it controlling us? Are we thankful for what God has given us? Contentment is not something that comes easy. So these are those things that if they characterize our life, they, are, they have no place. They don't belong. And yet, if we're honest, they're all struggles that we have. I don't think any of us can name ourselves as clean from all of these things. We talk about filthy talking going on, vulgar talk, foolish talking, the kind that doesn't build up. Kind of a metric that I try and think of, I fail very much at this is the thought is this going to help the person that I'm speaking to if it's not going to help them then is it worth saying maybe but it is one way to guard against foolish talking just going on and on about things that really don't matter And crude joking, you know, I used to think this was the, the real vulgar stuff, but, and it is vulgar, but the word there is kind of, I don't know how to describe it well, but it is the kind of joking that's really clever, really funny, but makes light of evil. That's where we get that crudeness to it. Humor is a good thing, but it can easily be used to put down one another. And that's really the, the thrust of that wording. What Are we always being sarcastic with one another to the place where people aren't valued and appreciated and uh, where God and His creation are, are, being, uh, are being put down? Now, all these things are not new. They're things that we can relate to in our lives. But this is the way of the world, the old way of life. And such things don't belong among God's people. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. These are things that we need to take seriously because sin is rebellion against the God 
who loves us and created us for a relationship with Him. And so I'm so thankful that verse 4 provides us with an answer. It teaches us the right lifestyle that we are to live. The right words that should come out of our mouths. And verse 4 ends, but let there be thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving. Because thankfulness is a worship of God. Instead of our desires. Thankfulness is seeking God and valuing Him and trusting Him rather than trusting ourselves. And we are thankful for God and all that He has done. Instead of seeking more, we can recognize all we need is found in our relationship with God. It's very easy to think there must be more. We need to remember the good news of the gospel. Jesus really is, God is, all that we need. But you and I were created to exist in a relationship of fellowship with God, walking in the light. The darkness, the sin, and our rebellion against God separates us from Him. And yet, He lovingly chose to send His Son and His Son. Jesus chose to come to the cross so that we might have life with Him, in Him. We need to remember these things. This is the renewing of the mind and the putting on of the new clothes that we spoke about last week. To remember the Gospel. And as we look at the Lord and what He has done, as we look at the light of the world, we can be the light. God calls us to be thankful. And there is so much to be thankful for. In many ways, the weight of this statement comes from the fact of the seriousness of the sin that he presents and also the seriousness of the consequences of a life of sin. And verses 5 and 6 paint a picture that is not pleasant to us. It says that those who live such lives are not a part of the kingdom of God. They have no inheritance the kingdom of Christ and of God. And also that because of such sin, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. 
this sounds quite harsh to the ears of those who are used to living for themselves. And that, quite frankly, includes me. <laughs> but those who live such lives, who are known for their sexual immorality and greediness, have themselves rejected their maker, redeemer, and king, and find themselves under God's just and holy anger. Now where there is repentance, there is indeed forgiveness. And the Lord longs for us to turn to him. But when a person refuses to acknowledge sin or express any desire to change their demonstrating that they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now such a person is not lost forever and, and only God knows the heart of a person who is living in sin. God is ever merciful and faithful and they may yet turn to Him and live. But God calls us not to live in sin, but to live in thankful hearts. Verse 7 goes on, in light of this truth, <clears throat> of these things that don't belong in the body of Christ, he says, therefore do not become partners with them. Not a partner with someone is to share with them in some possession, some relationship. Um, the idea here is a, an association with someone. We all know in, in the world what it means to partner, a business partner or, or something like that. The question, of course, becomes what kind of association are we talking about? There's a big difference between talking with somebody about the weather, uh, inviting them over for a barbecue or and uh, living the same way as the world or endorsing the ways of the world. The logic, if we, if we look at verses 5 through 7, it kind of flows like this. We have the statement, first of all, that the, such people are not heirs with you. For Paul has made the point that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are heirs and seated with Christ in the heavenlies. So they are not heirs with you. He then says in verse 6 that they will inherit something, but it is not pleasant, it is wrath. And therefore, we are told not to share with them, or participate them in such wrath. We participate with them in living the same way. Or in giving credibility to such a life. And I want to read now another passage of scripture found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
I want to read it because I think it's helpful and it's a reminder for us because it speaks about judgment. It also speaks about the body of Christ and what belongs. And so I'm going to read <clears throat> verses 9 to 13. And it had been reported there was sexual immorality among the people of God. And Paul is hearing this report, and, and he says it, this, this report is the kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. 1 Corinthians 5.1 This man was messing around with his stepmother. And so he goes on, he says some things, he says, ought you not to mourn? And grieve this and deal with this. And he writes in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter um, previously uh, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all was I meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. How many of those words are used in Ephesians 5? Quite a few. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. It's impossible to escape the world that we live in and the, and the sin that exists in those that have rejected God. But he goes on to say this. Now I'm writing you in verse 11, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler? And he goes so far as to say not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Those outside the church. Is it not those inside whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, but purge the evil person from among you. Now, these, again, are hard words for us. To say that we have, are to have nothing to do with those who claim to have an inheritance in God's kingdom and yet live an ungodly life. Again, I want to remind you that there is a purpose for this. In verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 5, 5 says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Sin in the body is to be addressed, but it is not to be addressed in a hateful way. It is to be addressed for the purpose of reconciliation. For the purpose of the salvation of the one who's living an ungodly life. An ungodly life that, apart from the grace of God, is deserving of judgment. We tend to do the reverse in this world and often can tolerate and be okay with inappropriate Christian lifestyles 
and yet we separate from non-Christians. There is much to consider when we, we think about that such a topic as church discipline, what that is, what that means, what the point of it all is. The point I want to remind you of is simply that sin is serious, first of all, in our own lives, and it's not something we can ignore in, in the church. It's also important that we be careful not to judge those who do not have the knowledge of God, who do not believe God, who do not claim to know God as we do. We want to be a light in a dark world. And that involves love and patience and kindness. And in whatever we do, we must do it to point people to the light. To the one who is their hope, who is the answer to a life of sin and darkness. God calls you and I to be a light in this dark world. And verse 8 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. This is the gospel. You were darkness. You were no different. You were in rebellion against God. But now you are light in the Lord. God does not give up on people. He does not give up on this world. He is a God of mercy and patience and love. He is the light of the world. And He calling us to be the light he has by his grace made those who believe in him to be a light some wonderful verses that remind us of this in the gospels as jesus spoke on this we read in matthew 5 a familiar passage you are the light of the world the city or yeah, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand so that it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the greatest purpose that we have in this world to display the light of, of Christ and His glory. It's not to be hidden from the world, but to be displayed in living a life that is pleasing to God. We need to remember again who we were and who we now are in Christ, in our relationship with Him, we are no longer darkness, but we are the light of the world. After Jesus 
said that God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. He goes on to speak of how the one who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Lest his works be exposed. But, John 3, 21, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. And again, in John chapter 8, after the Feast of Tabernacles, when the great candles in the temple were lit up as a remembrance of God's presence with them, dwelling with them in the wilderness, Jesus came and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What an amazing promise that we have. An amazing reality that we have in Christ. Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote, Like the moon we reflect the shining light of the Son of Righteousness. Our light is from Him alone. And we are light in the Lord. We have been declared pure and clean and holy in the Lord because of Christ and His pure holiness. Knowing that the light of the world has made us to be light in Him is the greatest motivation for us to be a light in this world. To live in the light. And so we are called to walk as children of the light at the end of verse 8. But the fruit of the light, verse 9, is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So we are called to think about what is good and right and true. To know and, and to understand what is good. This is also a call for us to consider the kind of fruit that we are showing. If we know what is right and good and true, um, we see where we're headed. It is good to stop and to ask the question, what is the fruit of what I am about to do? Where is this leading? Is even things that we may think of as harmless can become something that leads us away from God. We're called in verses 9 and 10 to search out what God would have us to do. 
To walk in the light is to live before the eyes of God. God who sees all. You can't hide from Him. We can hide from each other, but we can't hide from the Lord. And God calls us to acknowledge the, the areas. He longs for us to bring to light the things that we have, the ways that we have rebelled against Him, so that we might be forgiven. It's important for us to think critically and long and hard about what pleases God. That our love for Him would be the motivation for the things we do. And that our joy would be found in the things that He finds joy in. Verses 11 to 13 tell us not to take part in such things. Again, a reminder. Not only do not to take part in such things, but not to speak of them. Which is kind of, how do you bring something to the light but never speak of it? It's an interesting thought. It's not... It's not about the gory details of our sin and rather exposing things to the light and confessing them to the Lord is about the sadness of trampling on the the death of Christ, displeasing the God who loves us and saved us from our sins. To what does it mean to expose something? To expose something is to reveal it. Okay? Something is in darkness, you can't see it, but when you shine the light on it, you see it for what it is. Really, it's to, to call sin, to see sin for what it is. And when we're called to expose <clears throat> such things, it's not about airing everybody's dirty laundry. But it is about considering our own sin, being honest about it. And there is a place for lovingly guiding each other our brothers and sisters to the light of the gospel so that they would see their sin, both exposed and forgiven at the foot of the cross. And practically, what does all this mean? Well, 
means that in everything we ought to seek to not live a life of sin, but to live a thankful heart with thankful hearts, to remember the light of the world. And where we have opportunity to speak to one another about their sins and struggles, about our sins and struggles. And uh, there's no Bible verse about this, but same age and gender is probably a smart thing to do with many things. <laughs> need to be sensitive, I guess, about the way that we're dealing with and, and uh, talking about sin. What does this look like? Looks like helping people to see their sin, identify it, for ourselves to look at the Word of God and to see our sin for what it really is. Rebellion against God and and providing and seeing the opportunity for repentance. That God is not angry and just waiting to pour out wrath on His children as soon as they step out of line. He wants us to, to love Him. And to obey because we see that what is right is right and what is good is good. Just as any parent wants their children to know the difference between right and wrong, to see the thing, the path of life that's going to lead them down to destruction and what leads to life. And to expose sin to the light is to expose it to the forgiveness of God. We need to offer forgiveness and remind people of the grace of God. Remember it ourselves. This passage ends with a gospel call, you might say, to look to the light of the world. Verse 14 says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. If we want to shine the light, we must spend time with the light. God is calling Christians to wake from their slumber and to live in the light. You know that a person can pray and sing and sleep or and walk all well sleeping we call it sleepwalking and sleep talking i've never actually heard anyone sing but probably theoretically possible anyway sometimes we walk through life that way kind of half asleep 
And God calls us to wake up, to live out the fruit of the light, to expose the darkness, all the while depending on the light of the world and remembering Him. Sexual immorality, covetousness, filthy and foolish talking don't belong in the body of Christ. Children of light are called to love what is good and to hate what is evil. And the greatest cure in our struggle against darkness is to live in thankfulness and dependence upon God. We walk in the light by looking to the light. To remain connected with Him, to gaze upon His beauty is what makes all the difference in our lives. And as we look to Him, we begin to reflect 